Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strink. On this podcast, I speak with interesting people in pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic medicine. The study of anatomy is, in many ways, the basis for pathology and really all of medicine. So today, my guest is Michaela Stiver. Michaela is an anatomist and PhD candidate from Toronto. Today on the show, we'll talk with Michaela about her research and teaching experiences, and we'll talk about her work with Let's Talk Science and the Rehab Inc. podcast. Then after the show, stay tuned for a trailer from my interview with Dr. Melanie Boyce. But right now, here's Michaela Stiver. Uh, so I wanted to start with, you're currently working on your PhD in anatomy and rehabilitation science. And I know you're, I believe you're in your final year of that program. Is that right? Yes, I am. Okay. So I wanted to start there and kind of go in reverse. How did, how did you first get interested in, in this field? So I actually had to have a think about this to sort of go back to the beginning. Um, I'll try to give you the abbreviated version. It's quite a long story. Okay, that's um, fine. <laughs> I've always been uh, a bit of a nerd. I feel like a lot of people in academia have sort of inspiring stories about how, you know, they struggled in school until they discovered their field and suddenly everything just clicked. I've mm -hmm. just always been a giant nerd. Um, I've always loved school. I had, you know, generally good grades across the board, but overall really enjoyed science and math. Um, okay. And then it wasn't until grade 12 that I took an exercise science course and I just kind of got hooked on, you know, learning all the bones and ligaments and muscles, um, not to mention finding out that there were actual anatomy coloring books. That was pretty much the oh, nail yeah. in the coffin for me. They're fantastic. So then when it came to applying for university, a lot of the programs that I was applying for were sort of in the kinesiology or pre-med kind of area. Uh -huh. um, and I ended up choosing a program at the University of Guelph, which is about an hour from Toronto. And I was admitted into their human kinetics program, which is essentially kinesiology. They sort of described it as more of a science heavy version, if you will. Okay. Um, I honestly fell in love with the campus, decided I was going to go there. Plus, it had the added bonus of being the only university at the time in Ontario that offered a full body cadaveric dissection course at the undergraduate level. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it's it's quite a unique opportunity because they don't have a medical school, which for most schools that don't have a medical school, that just means no dissection. Right. But uh, Guelph had started their own body donation program. And so undergrad students were being getting the opportunity to do the entire dissection head to toe in their third year. So it was a really, really unique opportunity. And that was kind of the the thing that ultimately drew me to to Guelph. Okay. It sounds like you enjoyed that part. Do you think most of the other students enjoyed the, the dissection part? Absolutely. Yeah, it was a, it was quite a competitive course to get into. Oh. It was actually, it was a, a human kinetics course specifically. So human kinetics students had guaranteed spots in the course, which was always a bit of a contentious issue for the biomedical sciences students who felt that since most of them were pre-med, that they should be given priority to be in the anatomy course, but they actually had to apply for the remaining spots once the human kinetic students had had all registered. So yeah, it was, it was quite highly sought after. It was uh, exciting if you got got accepted into the course. So fortunately, I had a guaranteed spot just because I was in the human kinetic stream. And I actually decided to stay in the human kinetic stream specifically for that reason. And it gave me a little bit more flexibility in the rest of my degree as well. Gotcha. Okay. 
Yeah. So that was sort of how I started to get into it. A couple of things that people find kind of surprising to learn about me are that I have a very weak stomach. I have quite a quite a strong aversion to blood and I am terrified of death. So anatomy at, um, on the surface doesn't seem like a very good fit if, right. <laughs> if you're following yeah. me. That doesn't, those two things to, that they don't really follow each other, that you enjoyed the cadaveric dissection and then you're, you know, have an aversion to blood. Yep. Yeah. Um, so it, I actually almost dropped out of the anatomy dissection course uh, before, before it began, because over the summer I had purchased a copy of Rowan's Color Atlas of Anatomy. I don't know if you're familiar. It's got pictures of cadaveric dissections in it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, the first section of that book is head and neck, which is probably the most sort of, you know, emotional and um, difficult topic for most people when it comes to cadaveric dissection. So I opened to those pages first and had like a full fledged anxiety attack over the summer and was like, I have to drop this course. I can never do this. I'm definitely not going into medicine. That's for sure. I don't want, don't want any part of this, but I stayed registered in the course, got to the first lecture went to speak to uh, to the professor at the time, um, Dr. Lorraine Judeski. She's absolutely wonderful. And she said, you know what, before you drop it, and you're welcome to drop it if you want, but before you drop it, why don't you come and visit the lab sort of after, after hours, we'll take you around, we'll show you what it's like, give you a, a little bit of time to sort of acclimatize. And if you don't think that it's going to work out, all good, you know, no hard feelings. Mm-hmm. And yeah, had it not been for her and the rest of the staff at Guelph, I probably would not be where I am today. They, you know, sort of brought me in and really eased all of my fears, calmed calmed me down enough to get me to the point where I was able to see learning from the cadavers as this incredible, unique opportunity and sort of to view it as a science without completely dissociating myself from the fact that this is also a person. This is a person who has given sort of the ultimate ultimate postmortem gift, if you will. Yeah. So it was, it was incredible. And had it not been for them, I definitely would not have, have stayed in that course. And from there, I was just kind of hooked. They, uh, they haven't really been able to get rid of me since I, I always catch up with them at conferences and I go and visit Guelph periodically. They, yeah, they can't shake me now. That's, that's interesting. Like most of the people I talk with on this podcast have a story like that. Like there's a person or, or a couple people in their life that really helped steer their path. And it sounds like you've got that too. That's, that's really cool. Yeah, absolutely. That was definitely kind of the, the thing that set me down the path. Strangely enough, I then ended up doing a master's in neuroscience, not even in neuroanatomy. It was in, it was an animal research project. We were looking at learning and memory. It was very kind of it wasn't very tangible, the the types of type of research that we were doing. So I always found it really difficult to explain to people. They would go, oh, you're going to cure Alzheimer's. Fantastic. And I would just go, yeah, sure. That's <laughs> what I'm doing. <laughs> exactly. And so getting into, as I sort of neared the end of my master's, I was, again, having a little sort of, you know, not quite sure what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And I reached out uh, to my mother, of all people. Um, and she casually mentioned that she knew someone who does something with anatomy. When she was very young, they had done Estonian girl guides together. And she was like 99% sure that this woman was retired. But she's like, you know what, I'll give her a ring, set up a meeting, maybe she can just sort of chat to you about what you might want to do if you do want to kind of transition back into anatomy. Okay. 
And it turns out that this woman who does something to do with anatomy was Dr. Ann Auger, who is the current co-editor of Grant's Atlas of Anatomy and co-author of Moore's Essential Clinical Anatomy and Clinically Oriented Anatomy. So not exactly a small name in the field. That's a pretty big something to do with anatomy. <laughs> yeah, they. I guess they hadn't been in touch in a very, very long time. Um, it would have been when my now supervisor, when, when Anne was um, sort of in her late teens and my mom would have been uh, in her early, early teens, I guess. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of, was kind of the weird story that got me eventually to the University of Toronto where I am today. I took quite a, quite a meandering path, but um, if it hadn't been for all those, those experiences, I definitely wouldn't have the same kind of passion and excitement for anatomy as I do now. Uh-huh. Okay. That, that's another similarity with, with other people I've talked with. The meandering path, like you mentioned, a lot of people have that as well. And, and they kind of end up somewhere that, that maybe they didn't expect. So that's, that, that's interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> I was just going to say the, the only other thing that sort of came up too was that with anatomy, it never struck me as something that I would do a, a future research degree in because a lot of people have this misconception that anatomy is done we've, we've done it all. What do you need to oh, know? Okay. You know, leg bones connect to knee bone. <laughs> what, what do we need to research? Um, and actually I remember some of my colleagues at the time in my master's in neuroscience laughing and going, you're going into anatomy. Like really, what are, what are you going to look at? I don't understand. Mm -hmm. So for me at the time, when I was even starting to look at master's programs, I was like, well, there's nothing in anatomy. You know, we, we know it all. And that's most definitely not the case at all. Right. Right. <laughs> So, well, let's, let's talk about some of your current research. Currently, you're focusing on 3D structure of the trapezius muscle. So mm -hmm. I have to ask you, of, of all of the muscles, why, why the trapezius? It's a very good question. When my project kind of started out, it was much more clinically focused. So we were wanting to look into chronic pains, specifically myofascial pain syndrome. And we were trying to understand why these sort of palpable nodules in the muscle, often called trigger points, present in these remarkably predictable patterns. And strangely, no one has kind of considered just the, the structural anatomy of the muscle. They've looked at a lot of different you know, uh, chemical signatures within the muscle. They've looked at a lot of treatment, a lot of research into treatment, but no one's really looked at the actual structure of a muscle and why these sort of nodules might present in certain areas more commonly than others. Okay. That's where we started. And trapezius just happens to be one of the most commonly affected muscles in myofascial pain syndrome. And it's also a nice superficial muscle, an easy one to get to both with cadaveric dissection and also with uh, you know in vivo imaging with ultrasound, for example. So it was kind of the ideal target. So you mentioned ultrasound. Uh, is that one of the mm -hmm. main like procedures you're using uh, to examine the trapezius? Are there, are there others? So there are a couple. Um, ultrasound actually came in more recently. I had a really fantastic opportunity to go down to New Zealand, to Auckland. Oh, cool. Um, to work work with uh yeah there was it was a great great opportunity got some funding from the government and hopped on a plane before covid-19 turned everything upside down so that was end of last year and we were working on some ultrasound elastography so it's not just sort of your typical brightness mode ultrasound that's showing you the the structure of the muscles and other features but it's sending these kind of 
transverse waves through the tissue that gives an estimate of the stiffness or elasticity of the tissue. So that was something that we were piloting. We created new protocols and we're piloting some ultrasound elastography uh, protocols down there. So that's sort of one aspect of my my dissertation. Okay. And why is that? Well, why is the stiffness or elasticity? Why is that important? Like, what effect does that have? Um, it's yeah. So, I mean, the question for us was if, again, if these these trigger points are presenting in such predictable patterns, is there something fundamentally unique about the areas where they they more commonly present than those that don't? Are they generally more stiff? Are they generally mm. less stiff? Okay. Um, you know, do they, do they correspond to to other other differences within the muscles? So it was just sort of one of the ways that we thought about approaching that question. Okay. Um, yeah, but the the main part of my project is is really in in cadaveric dissection. I do these really really meticulous dissections of trapezius, where I have to basically isolate individual fiber bundles within the muscle, and then digitize them using a microscribe three D digitizer. It's used for a lot of three D modeling in in engineering and and such. Okay. Um, but we have a we have a group that we work with that has created a proprietary software for us. And we basically map the entire muscle and all of its connective tissues using this microscribe 3D digitizer so that we get an, like an unparalleled level of detail about the three-dimensional architecture of the muscle. Oh, so how long does that, does that take to, to dissect it and then digitize it like that? Oh, longer than I would really like to admit. I think, you know, people who are, are, perhaps a little bit younger and don't have back pain after three or four hours of digitizing can probably get it done a little bit quicker, but it does generally take me a couple of months to get through the full muscle alongside all of everything else I've got going on between you know, okay. teaching and writing, et cetera. Okay. I see. You, you mentioned the th the 3d uh, digitizing and then are you making like 3d models of, of the muscle then? Yeah, yeah, we are. So um, we're not we're not printing them out or anything. It's nothing quite that fancy, but we do okay. create models using Autodesk Maya. So it's just a 3D modeling software. And we create these models of the muscles so you can kind of manipulate it, take different measurements. And we also quantify all of the different architectural parameters in the muscle. So we look at fiber bundle length, the physiological cross-sectional area, all of these things that tell us more about the function of the muscle. Um, and we were, we've been looking at patterns of connective tissue as well in the muscle, because that was sort of one of my hypotheses going in was that there may be some relationship between areas where connective and contractile tissues meet and where these trigger points are, are commonly forming. So that's something we've been looking at as well. Have you found any, any evidence of, of that, like to prove your hypothesis or is it still kind of too early to it's a it's a little bit nebulous, um, okay. but there does seem to be some correlation between areas of what we call musculoaponeurotic junction or or myotendinous junction. Mm -hmm. Same idea with areas, yeah, again, where the connective and contractile tissues are coming together. A lot of the areas where one would assume assume those those regions are just by looking at, say, a picture in a, in a textbook or an atlas, for example, it seems to be a quite, quite a limited area. But what we found by dissecting through the entire muscle is that there are slips of connective tissue that actually jut quite, quite far out into the muscle. So it's possible that there is actually more area of musculoaponeurotic junction where 
these trigger points might be forming. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Wow. All right. Mm -hmm. So you do a lot of teaching as well. And of course, it's mostly in, in anatomy, but also in neuroanatomy. Mm -hmm. So when did you first start teaching? I imagine that was part of your, your, your master's program, and, and I'm sure that the PhD program as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I had my first TA ship in my master's. It would have probably been the first year of my master's. And I actually taught a sheep brain dissection lab. So it was really up my alley. It was not exactly what I wanted to be doing. I wasn't in the human anatomy lab, but at least I got to play around with, with sheep brains, which was, okay. was fantastic. Did you like teaching like right from the start? Did it kind of grow on you? No, I, I've always loved it. I, I think the first time I ever realized that I really enjoyed teaching, I was quite young. I was probably in grade five or six and our teacher at the time, wonderful, wonderful man made us all, every student had to teach a lesson to the core or to the class and it could be on absolutely anything we wanted. So I taught all of my fellow classmates about different nautical knots because that was what I was really into that particular summer up at my cottage. I had been tying all these knots. Okay. So I decided that's what I was going to teach the rest of my classmates. And I just loved it. Like I fed off the energy. I had so much fun with it, even as, you know, a 10 or 11 year old child. And ever since I've just been looking for opportunities to, to teach, whether it's in sort of a traditional setting or otherwise. Okay. I was going to ask you like, what do you find most rewarding about teaching? But it sounds like you, you just, just the act of teaching is what you find rewarding. Is that, does that sound about right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of the whole thing. I think it probably sounds cliche, but I, I love the classic aha moment where, you know, a student finally gets past that mental roadblock and things oh, yeah. click and they're like, oh, that makes so much sense. Whether it's one of my, I do messy little drawings all over our whiteboards and chalkboards in the labs and I make up completely ridiculous um, analogies and mnemonics for the students, um, which sometimes don't go over well at all. And other times they, they really, really stick. So that's, that's another part that I really enjoy is it kind of gives me an, an outlet to be creative and, and try new things. And if they don't work, that's all right. There, yeah. I, I remember when I was in high school in I don't know if it was algebra or geometry class, some math class. And the teacher mm -hmm. came up with some kind of mnemonic to remember, was it sine and cosine and tangent and how you calculate them, whatever. But I still remember the mnemonic to this day. No, absolutely. That, I mean, I know there's a lot of sort of mixed opinions about mnemonics, but in my view, I mean, if the things we learn are useless to us unless we can actually retrieve them. And right. if you need to rattle off a little like, oh, 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 to touch and feel very good velvet, ah, heaven, and that's going to help you remember the cranial nerves. Great. That, that works. I love that. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. As, as long as it works, I mean, I'm sure it wouldn't work for everyone, but if, if you can help at least some people to remember those things, that's, that's definitely a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, currently with the, with the COVID pandemic, how have you had to change or adapt to that with, with your teaching uh, responsibilities? It has been tricky. So since, you know, end of March, beginning of April, everything moved online mm -hmm. and anatomy in particular, as you can imagine, is really, really challenging to teach virtually right. because everything is so three-dimensional and it's really difficult to appreciate things 
when you can't handle and manipulate specimens. And I mean, I've, I've tried my best by bringing models or bone replicas home and trying to demonstrate in videos or during a synchronous lab, but it's just not the same. It's still two-dimensional for the student watching it on the other side of the screen. So it's very difficult to sort of um, communicate those same ideas. And I know a lot of the students have expressed that they're really missing the in-lab component of, of their anatomy courses. And I, I feel for them, it's, it's one of the most exciting and unique aspects of taking anatomy. So it's, it's difficult to have had to go completely virtual. Yeah, that's, that's gotta be difficult. I mean, there is only so much you can learn from a book. And like you said, even the videos, they're, they're still two dimensional. There's, it's, there's really something to be said to have your actual hands on the, you know, the organ or the body part that you're trying to study. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, things like, I remember students picking up a liver for the first time and just realizing how large and heavy it is. Uh -huh. And it's really difficult to communicate that over a screen and be like, you can see in this plastic model, that's not even really to scale. You can imagine that it's actually larger and heavier, that it doesn't do anything for the students, right. anything more than the textbook saying, you know, it, it weighs this much and it takes up this much space. It's, it's much more sort of salient to them to actually be able to pick it up and experience it for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. So you've developed some online resources for uh, neuroanatomy on your, on your own website, and you include some 3D models on there. And these are some of the things I, I think that you've, one of the ways that you've adapted to, to teaching during COVID now, how did you get this idea to use the 3D models? Yeah, for sure. Um, that the neuroanatomy page that I have, that's, I mean, it's a little bit sort of rudimentary at the moment because it's only for a single unit for an introductory neuroanatomy course for our physical therapy students. Mm -hmm. But we got thrown in very, very quickly, and they had a huge amount of information that needed to be presented, um, and we weren't going to be able to take them into lab so that they could handle the skulls and brains and whatnot. So I was racking my, my brain trying to figure out what I was going to do to supplement this in some way, and I sort of I turned to all of my lovely friends and colleagues on Twitter and you know asked them to send me some of their favorite resources and just. You know, I, I know they're doing some great work at other universities with uh, you know, CT scans and with photo photogrammetry and all kinds of really cool techniques that are capturing so much detail and creating these three-dimensional and manipulable models. So I reached out to a few few different people. Some sent me links, others sort of directed me elsewhere. So on that page, I've got resources from the Neurosurgical Atlas from the University of British Columbia. They're doing so many fantastic things over there um, from Anatomage. So it was basically me just kind of trying to compile as many different resources as I could that hopefully the students would be able to pick and choose and figure out what worked for them. But those 3D models in particular, I thought were really fantastic because you can actually spin them around mm -hmm. and look inside and zoom in, um, which is, is much more than can be said for for most you know, 2D images. Have you have you gotten any feedback from the, the students is that these these models have helped them? Have, have you heard anything like that? I know that they enjoyed having that as a resource. Um, a lot of the students had difficulty at first with manipulating the models. It can be a little bit 
tricky to kind of get them moving. You have to figure out, you know, which mouse button does what. One rotates, one zooms, one pans. So it, it does take a little bit of sort of finagling to figure it all out. But in general, the feedback was really positive. We'll get back to our interview with Michaela Stiver in just a minute. But first, I posed a question on Twitter this week, which was, what is your favorite part of working in pathology and laboratory medicine? And I'd like to read for you some of the responses that I got. Gina wrote, I love seeing how the body adapts to when things go wrong. It's amazing to see changes like redirection of blood supply, movement of organs, and reduction of organ size to cope with something weird going on. Walter wrote, I know what I do makes a difference every day. Even though I may not see or touch the patient, I am helping to heal another person. Noble and rewarding. From Dr. Hoda, sometimes I feel like a judge giving a verdict based on the facts and information. Other times I feel like a navigator in a rally car helping predict turns. Other times a scientist investigating details to put things together. Corey wrote, coming into work each day and not knowing what to expect. You come in and are essentially given a puzzle every day. You might not have all the puzzle pieces, but between what the clinician provides, the specimen provides, and the microscopy provides, you can finish the puzzle. Dr. Arnold wrote, deciphering beautiful histology into a diagnosis that helps patients. And from Dr. Magnani, her favorite part is solving the puzzle. These are all great answers, and I'd like to thank everyone who wrote in. Now, back to Michaela Stiver. You had, and you tell the story a little bit on your website, you you had an experience at the American Association of Anatomists conference, I guess, I guess that was last year, and then it led mm -hmm. you to study histology. Uh, can, mm -hmm. can you tell me that story? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that was actually my first American Association of Anatomists conference. At the time, it was still American Association, or rather, it was American Association of Anatomists at the time. It is now American Association for Anatomy. They've rebranded. Oh, okay. But... Um, I had never had an opportunity to go before. I was um, I took a little bit of time off of my PhD at the beginning of my degree, so I was a little bit behind and didn't have anything to present for the first couple years of my degree. So I jumped at the opportunity to go to this first one, and the thing that kind of came up over and over was this idea of the big four in anatomy, so being kind of gross anatomy or macroanatomy, neuroanatomy embryology and histology or the microanatomy. And the more I sort of, you know, went to all these different talks at the conference, the more I realized that I am really only proficient in two out of those four areas. I I'm quite, quite happy and quite, quite confident in gross anatomy and also in neuroanatomy in part, thanks to my masters. But I had, hadn't taken anything more than like a really, really brief introductory course that kind of touched on histology and embryology. And I sort of, I got quite anxious about the fact that a lot of job postings that are coming up are looking for people who are very flexible and kind of able to teach across that whole range. So I went, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? Uh -huh. So I had my, had my little existential crisis about the whole thing. Um, and then I realized it was well within my reach to sort of fill that gap. So I started, I got home and I decided I was going to start teaching myself histology from scratch grabbed a whole bunch of textbooks from the lab, dragged them home. And I thought, this is a really great and unique opportunity for me to try to create resources from the perspective of someone learning the topic for the first time. So I think that's one of the things that I have always struggled with as I'm you know, putting together 
labs or, or lectures or what, whatever it may be to make sure that I'm touching on all the details that a student actually needs to, to know or to understand in order to grasp some of the more complex ideas. And so I, I thought to myself, well, this is a really great opportunity for me to kind of document my whole experience and write down all the bits and pieces that confused me at the beginning uh -huh. so that I can create resources that would hopefully appeal to someone who really doesn't have any any background whatsoever in in the area. Okay. And the section on, on your on your site that you have dedicated to this is pretty extensive. I mean, you cover pretty much all of the main, you know, cell types and uh, some of the tissue types and things like that. Have you actually used this already as a as to, to teach in, in some of your classes? I I haven't actually used it formally. Um, it is still a little bit of a work in progress. I got through the first couple of topics and then life got in the way. So I've got, got a few pages that are still kind of blank or part finished. Okay. And I, I do hope to finish them in the near future. But it was something that I shared with all of my friends and colleagues when people started reaching out looking for resources. Um, there were there were a lot of initiatives compiling resources for other educators, you know, looking for for specific resources in in all those different areas of anatomy. And I sort of shared it and said, if you want something that's you know goes right back down to the basics, this might be a good place for your students to start. So it's it's on a few lists and and whatnot that have been been shared around. And I have people who visit my site from all over the world now, which is kind of cool. Oh, nice. I. I'm a little bit addicted to my my Google Analytics account and looking at all the different countries that I've reached. Yep, I can relate to that one. Yeah, you know, I definitely think it, it, that part of your site, I mean, that's a good, that's almost an entire intro to histology course. I mean, it certainly could be used for medical students, uh, for those, definitely for those going into pathology. So yeah, I, I really enjoyed looking through that that part of your site. Oh, I'm so glad. It was also it was also a great opportunity too for me to kind of get acquainted with some of the other big names in the field, people who are already doing great work in the area of histology. And uh -huh. um, so in on each of my pages, I've also sort of linked resources that I thought were really well done. I've got stuff by um, Dr. Jamie Chapman mm -hmm. uh, down in in Tasmania, Damian Harkin in Brisbane, Jared Gardner, Nathan Swales, sure. you know, all the all the big histology names, it was fun to sort of add their pieces to the end and say, you know, this is, this is my perspective on it. But if you want, want the real experts, here are some links that you can go to. Oh, okay. That makes sense. So I wanted to talk about some of the, uh, you have sort of an artistic side to a lot of your work. There's a hashtag that I, I think you, you probably invented it, anatomy doodle. Or, yes. And uh, I've seen some of these that you post on Twitter. How long have you been interested in in doing like artwork or doing that type of artwork? Not not actually all that long. Okay. Um, it was something that I picked up as a as a COVID hobby, if you will. Oh, sure. Yeah. So it was uh, I think it was end of May. I had finally reached my breaking point in lockdown and been like, I need a new hobby. I need something to do. I have never been a particularly artistic person. If you give me pen and paper, um, unless I have a ruler on hand, everything I make just kind of looks like garbage. So I've never, never really been a particularly artistic person, but I had played around a little bit with digital artwork and, and thought I would maybe give it a go. 
So I, I bought myself a late birthday present, bought myself an iPad and an Apple pencil and got Procreate and uh, decided to, to give it a try. I think digital artwork has been a little bit more my speed because I can redraw the line a thousand times if they're not perfect and no one ever has to know, except oh. for all the people who listen to your podcast who now know my secret. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, it's been a really uh, sort of rewarding way to spend my time in that otherwise I was just kind of sat on the couch watching TV or watching trashy movies. Mm -hmm. So maybe I should at least do something semi-productive with my time. So that's how I've been filling my time lately. Did you find that it was helpful to like to, to review just for your own knowledge? You like you were, you started remembering things that you may have forgotten or it's something like that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I feel like I'm always, always learning every time I review for a lab, I'm remembering something new or learning something new, um, whether it's from my own review or from a student asking a question that's just totally left field. Those are, again, things that really excite me about teaching. Um, so yeah, I was creating a lot of these illustrations for teaching purposes because I was having to create these, these um, slide decks for our virtual labs. I wanted them to at least be semi-visually appealing and I couldn't always find the type of image that I wanted and often especially couldn't find one that wasn't completely annotated and labeled all over. So I said, all right, I'm just going to start from scratch and I'll, I'll make my own. Lately, you've been doing some animations as well. What, what have you been using to do that? It's, uh, it's remarkably also all in Procreate. Even a, even a beginner like me can do some pretty basic or, I mean, basic, but somewhat impressive looking animation just on Procreate. So they've got oh. some great tools where you can sort of draw your initial illustration and then it will create sort of a you know a shadow that you'll then go to the next the next frame and draw it slightly differently so it'll move and then it will string it all together and you can create like an MP4 or a GIF. Mm -hmm. um, so this was something that I started doing because sort of going back to that big four, um, embryology is the other one that I am particularly weak in. I don't know a lot about it at all, other than the fact that embryology is awesome and explains absolutely everything. I don't know much other than what I've had to read for the general introduction for my, my thesis. So I pulled out a bunch of books, started looking at them, and was having a lot of trouble translating the static images and understanding how development actually worked. It was difficult for me to go from A to B and say, but how does how does that become that? So okay. one of the first ones that I did was with, with heart development, which is just a, a totally wacky process and was having so much trouble understanding how it all twists and turns. So yeah, I, I found a whole bunch of different resources, found these sort of static images of different stages, and then just did my best to string it all together. And then I popped it up on Twitter and asked people to, to send me all of their, their thoughts and, and um, if they had any suggestions or if I had totally, totally missed the mark. And then I sort of made a, a second version that was a little bit more accurate according to the, the embryology folks who weighed in. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's one of the fun <laughs> things about, about Twitter. Like you can get that feedback almost right away from people all over the world. Yeah, it's fantastic. There are so many people who I would love to be able to just, you know, call up on the phone or reach out to who I've met at conferences. But 
yeah, because everything is so international these days, it's not always possible. So Twitter has really been sort of ideal in that sense, in that it's been a great way to build that sense of community and to stay in touch with all those people who I I really admire their work and I, I value their input. Yeah. Yeah. You can get a, a, a point of view that's different from yours, something you, you never would have thought of. You can get it right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. I, I want to talk a little bit about some of the outreach that you do because you do quite a bit. And one of them is a program called Let's Talk Science, which I know is, mm-hmm. is I believe that's only in Canada. So can we talk about what that is and then how, how did you get involved with it? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it is a it is a Canadian organization. It's a national charitable organization. And their main focus is on creating what they refer to as sort of hands-on, minds-on, curriculum-based activities for STEM. So science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Right. Um, and I first heard about the organization when I was in my master's at Guelph. And I started volunteering. So what they do is they'll partner you up with different educators in kindergarten through grade 12, you go into the classroom and you run different activities. Many of them are sort of combined into kits. So it will be about a specific topic. Um, and they are all based on different aspects of the curriculum at that grade level. Okay. So I did that for a couple of years well, during the two years of my master's. And then when I got to the University of Toronto, um, it's a much, much bigger school here. And I was a little bit overwhelmed trying to sort of find a spot to fit in and realize that they did have a chapter of Let's Talk Science here as well. So started volunteering with them. And uh, in my second year, I believe, of my PhD, um, I took up a role as a site coordinator. So I worked with a team of four other individuals. um, And my role was primarily in large events. So I was helping to coordinate some high school symposia, uh, again, on topics that I know absolutely nothing about. So we, we did a, a stem cell symposium called Stem Cell Talks oh. and one on cancer research called Let's Talk Cancer. Um, so I was primarily on the sort of logistics side. But again, I, I'm kind of addicted to learning new things all the time. I think it's one of the things that makes it difficult for me to finish my my thesis at the moment is that I'm perpetually distracted by other interesting things. Right. But it was a it was a fantastic opportunity to not only work with people in those fields, but also sort of to give back and watch young minds get excited about about science and and engineering and math in the same way that I had. Yeah, that's definitely an important thing. Do you feel like like do you have any examples of the kids that just were so excited about what they were learning that you knew that they were going to go in that direction, like kind of follow in, in your sort of in your footsteps? Well, that's a great question. I'm trying to think of any specific examples. Um, I think one of the most salient examples, this was kind of a, a, a unique experience in that it was not in a classroom setting, but let's talk science sponsored a launch event for Nintendo Labo. And Bill Nye, the science guy, was there. Oh, and cool. all of the kids, it was fantastic. It was like meeting my childhood hero. Right. Um, and all the kids who were there were just so excited and so engaged. They were the, basically these sort of cardboard kits. And the kids were creating these you know, different robots and machines that were compatible with the Nintendo Switch. And it was really, really cool to watch. A lot of these these kids were really, really young, like 
five or six years old and they were just so into it and they knew so much about the technology. They were half the time correcting me and telling me <laughs> I was doing it all wrong. Um, yeah. But that was really great to see. It was, yeah, it was fantastic. Oh, that's awesome. Awesome. All right. Another thing you do is a, it's a publication called Rehab Inc. Mm-hmm. Right now, how did this start? And, and again, how did you get involved with it? Sure. Yeah. Um, Rehab Inc. is a digital magazine. It's entirely student-led, so it was created by graduate students in the Rehabilitation Sciences Institute at the University of Toronto in 2015, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. And I have been involved since the third issue, which was around spring 2017, and we are going into our 10th issue that's coming out in February. Um, We've just finished our our abstract review process, and we are moving into first round of edits shortly. So it's a, it is a, a double blinded peer reviewed publication process that we've put together. So it mimics what one would expect to experience if they were submitting to any other journal, but it is focused on a, a broader audience. So we encourage our authors to write for a lay audience and write in a way that is a little bit more like science journalism rather than sort of your typical scientific, really jargon heavy writing that you see in a lot of journals. Okay. That sounds similar to, I don't know if you're familiar with the magazine called The Pathologist. It's out of, out, mm-hmm. out of the mm-hmm. UK. It sounds similar to that. Yeah, absolutely. It was trying to fill a niche in that rehabilitation sciences is I think often overlooked in sort of the the healthcare world in that, you know, a lot of focus is put on, on acute illness and acute care where rehab is so much more focused on the long term, And so we felt, or at least the students who started this felt that there was sort of a, a lack of information out there about what rehabilitation sciences is and that a lot of people who are having to use these rehab services aren't able to learn a lot about them until they're already like knee deep and having to either um, use the services themselves or if they're acting in the as as a caregiver for example they're they're kind of going in blind mm-hmm. and so there was a desire to create this this way of disseminating information in a way that was going to be accessible and digestible to the public about a topic. Yeah, that's, that's sort of not out there. And we, we do have similar publications on campus and some of the other, other departments as well. But yeah, that's, that's sort of the idea behind Rehab Inc. Okay. And then there's, there's a podcast as well, the Rehab Inc. podcast, uh, which I know you're involved with. Uh, when, when did the podcast start? Yeah, the podcast was sort of an add-on. I can't remember exactly who brought it up. There were several students who had sort of played around with the idea and we decided to to give it a go. It actually started while I was away in New Zealand, so I was sad to not be able to be involved in the first couple of episodes. But mm-hmm. when I came back, um, we applied for funding through the University of Toronto. They had a COVID-19 student engagement award. They wanted to try to you know, use some of their funding in order to encourage students to continue, you know, putting out the great work that they normally would when they're on campus and able to collaborate a little bit more organically, but to, yeah, to encourage student groups to continue on. So we got some funding to make a COVID-19 mini series, and that's really where I've kind of jumped on. So it's the same kind of idea in that our aim is to appeal to a broad 
audience, um, whether it's people who are you know studying rehabilitation sciences or people who have literally never heard of the field before. And with the COVID-19 mini, mini series, we we had sort of people coming in from all different perspectives. So we were looking at everything from we we interviewed a, a physical therapy student who had been redeployed to a long-term care home. We interviewed a palliative care physician who was doing a lot of work with homelessness during the pandemic. Um, it was a yeah, it was a really really exciting opportunity for us. And we are just wrapping up the fifth episode right now, which is a student experience episode. Okay. Okay. So, and you co-hosted many of the, the COVID series episodes, and I know you did some of the editing for a few of the episodes as well. Yes, I did. I've been trying my hand at audio editing. Turns out it's probably not my calling in life, but it has been a really great experience to try to learn and, uh-huh. and, uh, yeah, <laughs> I you know as far as podcasting, the editing part is my least favorite part of it. It's the most time consuming, I think. So yeah, yes. <laughs> I'm I'm with you there. That there's a steep learning curve for that. Yeah, it all seems so straightforward. It's just you know a whole bunch of of wave patterns, and mm-hmm. you're like, I just need to make them all even. But then yeah, people have you know different sort of verbal crutches and ticks that are difficult to edit out, especially if they're particularly distracting, for example. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, you know, we try to make it sound, it's difficult to listen to someone who says like every two words or whatever. So <laughs> we do try to make it as, as easy to listen to as possible, but yeah, it has not been, not been the easiest thing, Right. but I think we've done a half decent job with our editing. Yeah, no, I, I, I've listened to some of the episodes. I think they sound really good. Oh, fabulous. Thank you. Yeah. You're like we said at the beginning, you're in your final year of your PhD program. Once you finish the PhD, what's next for you? It's a great question. I had really actually hoped to have been wrapped up by now. COVID-19 has really, really got in my way. Sure. I was planning to have, um, yeah, submitted and defended long before the end of this year. So I am planning to submit early next year and defend in the spring, at which point I think my my goal right now is to find a faculty position at a college or university with sort of a, a more heavy teaching focus. I think I finally come to terms with the fact that heavy research load is probably not the best fit for me. I have never been particularly enthusiastic about applying for grants um, things like that. But I, I do love the teaching side of it. And I know that there's a need out there for anatomy teachers. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping that I can find something that works. And at this point, uh, both my partner and I are quite flexible on location. So we've been looking all over the world. I have my my eye on job postings everywhere at the moment. Oh, okay. Okay. Do you have kind of a long-term goal for for what you want to do in your field? I'm not quite sure yet. It's something I've been grappling with a little bit in that I feel like I haven't quite found my niche yet. I haven't quite figured out what it is that I have to offer and what I am both good at and what is needed. But I'm just going to continue to explore and hopefully that will will come out in the wash at some point. Okay. Okay. In the show notes for this episode, I'll have a link to your website to uh a lot of the other stuff we talked about, as well as the Rehab Inc. podcast. Yeah, Michaela Stiver, thank you very much for being here. This has been great. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.
Big thanks to Michaela Stiver. I really enjoy talking with her, and I just love her excitement about all the things she's working on. You'll find links in the show notes to all of the things we talked about today. That's at peopleofpathology.podbean.com. And of course, you can always follow this show on Twitter at People of Path. And if you like this episode, if you liked Michaela's excitement and enthusiasm, make sure you share the show with someone you know. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. I'm a member and the CFO of the American Association of Pathologist Assistants. This show does not necessarily represent the views of the AAPA and receives no financial support from the AAPA. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast. And now here's a trailer from my interview with Dr. Melanie Boyce. I want to move on to the Society for Cardiovascular Pathology, yeah, uh, which I know you're a part of and active in. Can you tell me about this organization? What is it, and uh, what is it? What does it do? I'd love to. Thanks for asking about them. Yeah, the the Society of Cardiovascular Pathology. It's it's really a group of international individuals, and we're all interested to interested in and, and dedicated to the advancement of cardiovascular disorders. Organization was officially started, I believe, back in. 1985, um, but it's still going strong today. And I, I will say we are, we're relatively small when it comes to a comparison to other pathology subspecialties. But honestly, that that small nature of it fosters a feeling of collegiality and mutual support among the members. I mean, you get to know people very well. And um, <clears throat> for that reason, it's, it's a really fun group to be a part of. I mean, we're all just sharing the same passion and um, meet once a year around the time of the United States and Canadian Academy of Pathology meeting to review literature and cases. We meet about consensus documents and discuss our society journal, which is aptly called the cardiovascular pathology. We're always looking for new members. I mean, we, we love new members of any experience level. If you are interested in cardiovascular pathology, if you have a passion for it, if you just think you might be interested, we welcome you to reach out to one of us to attend our meetings and um, really a, a friendly group that's very non-threatening and we, we would love to have you as part of our society. To hear more from Dr. Boyce, check out episode number three of the People of Pathology podcast.